This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Was my intro voice to your liking that time where there's been an uptick in comments about <laughs> you it? You know I just what? I was thinking if... I, he sounds relaxed. It's like you can tell we recorded this episode after lunch. I was going to say, I also practiced some box breathing. Do you know what that is? I have this breathing. You put a box that... on your head and continued to breathe. <laughs> you breathe into a box, but first you fill it with bees. So you're really grateful that you live <laughs> to take each breath. It's a, it's very relaxing. Where did you come up with bees in your house on such short notice? I, oh, you can get them on Amazon. You can just order uh, bees. You know, you can bees. just get everything on Amazon. Yeah, I'm a big fan. There are... Um, I, I'm, I will frequently be reading a novel and get to a place where the writer starts describing in detail the sandwich that they're ordering or whatever. And I think, oh, this is this was written before lunch, but not yes. very far before lunch. You can tell when a hungry writer is getting to a place in the story because suddenly the descriptions of food telescope into or on a diet, I guess. Mm. Um, but yeah, you can I can always hear it. So no, you just seemed relaxed. So you relaxed? Everything good over there? How's your life? I, I, I think that I'm allergic to chicken and I'd like us to talk about that proposition for a little bit. And I'd like our party people who may or may not be allergic to chicken to weigh in on the Facebook page because we were talking before we hit the record button, the show before the show, if you will. Every time I eat chicken, I feel weird. I feel sort of tingly and dizzy. And how is that different from how you ordinarily feel? <laughs> you know what? I need you to take my made-up food allergies seriously for just 30 seconds while we well, intro this podcast. I would say, okay? I will say this about that. I don't think you'd be, you must be very allergic to chicken or you'd be so dead. Oh, really? Why? Because you think I eat a lot of chicken or you think chicken yeah, allergies are don't mess around? Yeah, do you remember when you discovered around? how to bake chicken and it was like you had invented chicken um, and you couldn't stop telling people and you ate a lot of baked chicken and not a lot of complaints and not dead? Like, yeah. you know, I would think if it was a truly toxic to you, you would have had some pretty severe, what you call it? But I don't know. I mean, food always has an effect on you, right? You're ingesting chemicals into a system that runs on a series of chemical reactions. So how could it not, not make this a diet episode? I will not make this a diet episode. I will not make this a diet episode, but yes, you are correct. Also, um, you can go on the internet and find all manner. And I, I have not done this with chicken. I will not do this with chicken. I'm, I'm better about this in general, but you can find all sorts of frightening conspiracy driven theories about various types of food, the way food is kept, maintained, preserved, processed, that will convince you that you are constantly at death's door every time you take the risk of eating anything. Yeah, I mean if you ate chicken that had antibiotics in it, 
you might be having a similar reaction that you would have to having taken antibiotics. And antibiotics people could be allergic to, or maybe it's something in the feed, or do you know what I mean? Like, I think there's a whole host of chemical possibilities for being allergic um, to having an allergic reaction. I Chicken seems pretty inert, but you could add stuff to it. I, I don't know what you add to it. So, or, you know, we don't really know what shape it, what it's made of. We, if you are what you eat, you don't know what it's made out of. If you raised your chicken on um, antifreeze, you know, they I would did be, raise these chickens on it. These are actually my antifreeze chickens. I, I was maybe, there in my uh, car closet. Or, or maybe it's a primordial allergy because they're they're actually dinosaurs, and you're violating the uh, the food chain order by eating a dinosaur when you used to be dinosaur prey. So well, you're 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 going you're going against the uh, the natural order of the the food chain by having evolved past it. I feel like I've made a mistake bringing this up on the podcast. <laughs> I feel like we have to post a disclaimer now that we are not nutrition or diet experts and nothing. We know that absolutely we say nothing about anything that we seriously. ever talk about and that as novelists, we're very accomplished liars. Because that's so all novels really are. It's like hundreds and hundreds of page, pages of stuff we just made up. So so there's that. But, but it yeah, is true. I think anybody who tuned into this particular podcast for um, food and nutrition advice probably, you know, like is somewhat asking for it. <laughs> We'd like to direct you to podcasts where people actually know what they're talking about. Yes, the dinner party we, was about conversation, not about the actual food. We still get letters and solicitations all the time from, you know, would you like to include our silverware at your catering company? And it's like, it's not a catering company. Yes. It's a podcast. Well, I would be the worst caterer. I would be the worst caterer. I would be the worst food services person. I'd probably eat everything before I brought it out to people. That Unless it was be, chicken, because I'm allergic. Would You would eat all of the first tray of what you brought out, and then <laughs> after that, we could trust you. So we would just yeah. give you a tray of, you know, of maybe partially of the older hors d'oeuvres, and you polish those off. They, we could get Cheddar Bay biscuits. We could stuff oh. you full of those, and then you'd be full, and you know maybe a little gassy to be around the guests, but you wouldn't be eating their food. I think you'd be really conscientious. Yes, I think there are aspects of being um, a caterer that you'd be really good at, um, but I also think that you might um, completely lose your mind because food is very unpredictable, and the. Oh. Um, the stress level of being a caterer might drive you completely over the edge. I We have talked about this before on the podcast, but I have been doing your laundry during the pandemic. And the process through which I put your laundry once it is cleaned, it could probably survive radioactive fallout. You know, the number of times I wash my hands while I do your laundry. This has been this whole, and we don't, we try not to and talk about. Just as a disclaimer, washing your hands will not protect you from radioactive fallout. Just to <laughs> be clear, we're, we are not saying <laughs> that washing your hands will protect you from radioactive fallout. Just to, we are just not, to be on the record. We with are that. not dispensing any form of health advice. And as I was going to say, we are also not in the business of talking a lot about the coronavirus pandemic on here because. We don't like talking about it, and we're we are we're committed to giving you a diversion from it if you're downloading these episodes when we're still in the thick of it, and we want these episodes to live forever. But um, when I the, was doing the book tour for Say Uncle, people would come to my book signings to ask me child rearing questions, and I was like, 
really? <laughs> yeah. Like, A, did you read how he raised the kid? Like, I think he was a nice guy, but clearly maybe not the, and I really just made it up because it's a novel and I've never raised any children, but, mm-hmm. but people told me a lot of the stuff in the book worked. And so that's why they wanted further advice. The part where they keep the baby inside of a drawer. Did that work? <laughs> there is that's, no part where the baby is there kept is no inside part. of the drawer. That's from a Simpsons episode. No, they're on the school bus and they're grinding to school and the kids are saying, divorce isn't so bad. I think they're afraid that Marge and Homer are going to divorce. They said, look at Timmy. His parents got divorced. And Timmy goes, I sleep in a drawer. Yeah, because life is harder on the Simpsons. Um I couldn't watch The Simpsons for a long time when it first came on because I felt like they were making fun of poor, ignorant people. And then I got over it. And then you got over it. Okay, speaking of getting over stuff, we actually have a topic for today's episode rather than... And you're over it? Is that Eric is (laughs) (laughs) No. We haven't even started yet, Christopher. You can't be over it. We're in the the A block, as Rachel Maddow says. I would say the topic, and we don't have to dive right in. I'm just going to set it up so that people know we give some thought to what we do here. It's not True Crime TV <laughs> Club this week. I think people. It, I think people are wise to us. I think it's not crazy, not kooky. Uh, what science this week? Which we did two episodes ago. Uh, we did. A, this is Ask Eric Volume Four, where we put a question out to our wonderful party people on Facebook, and Eric and I also answer the question. But Eric's answer is usually smarter and better, which is why it's called Ask Eric. Uh, we wanted you to talk about your best summer because we're going to go out on a limb and just. Say this one probably ain't it. <laughs> Given the state of the world, not sure. Maybe you're having the best summer of your life, and if you are, great. Keep it up. More power to you. And tell us what you're doing because we might be interested in trying it ourselves. But you know, it is. It is. It gets back to that same thing. I actually mentioned it on the last episode of like my favorite J.M. Barry quote, which is "God gave us mm-hmm. memories so we could have roses in December." This is, you know, we can have happy vacations or happy summers in the middle of a quarantine. And But you also reminded me, I think this was at the beginning of the pandemic, and I feel like the two ideas are kind of related and connected, that the, the psychological advice for weathering it was focus on what you have to look forward to doing once it's done with us to some degree, to some degree. And we're not going to go back to normal. We're not going to go back to normal quickly by any means. But once you are here in California, they call it phase four reopening. Once we've reached phase four and the numbers are where they are and maybe there's a vaccine and all that sort of stuff, what is the thing that you are going to most look forward to doing? And I think this is like the backwards version of that, but I don't mean backwards in a negative way. You, what is the, you've got to find a mental place to park your brain other than constant worry and anxiety about the state of the world. I think that's what a lot of us are learning. Yeah, imagination you know? is, a great, um, is a great departure. I think it's part of the reason that we're all watching a lot of television and watching mm-hmm. a lot of movies and reading a lot of books. And I think it's the, part, the reason that we read books and write books and make those things in the first place is that the imagination is a wonderful place to dwell I can't wait for them to invent the holodeck so that I can travel the world and do all kinds of amazing things without leaving the house. Talk about what the holodeck is for those who may not know the term. It was on the second iteration. I think it was the second iteration of Star Trek. I think it was called Next Generation. 
was mm-hmm. the one where John Luke Picard first came along, and they had. I'm getting the thumbs up from thumbs our resident, up from our Trekkie sound engineer, Trekkie expert. Yes. So yeah, so that's it. And they had on the ship a room that was called the holodeck, and the holodeck was through holographic technology created whatever environment you wanted it to be, and so you could be go for a horseback ride and still be on board that ship. It was a really sort of brilliant device um, in terms of writing because it allowed them not to be confined to the ship or necessarily some alien planet all the time. They had episodes where they were in the Wild West or where they were in, um, uh, oh, what, what do you call it? Like uh, heraldic times, like the medieval periods. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, at, it was all taking place in that room. They also had weird episodes where the room got jammed and they kept, they were trying to escape and it became a hostile environment. And, but it was a fun sort of, it was the ultimate, the ultimate manifestation of imagination. Right. Absolutely. Like I love the Sims for a lot of that reason, because it's about creating a world where you can be in control. It's for, you know, control freaks, but, um, but you don't have to be, you could just let things unfold if you didn't want to, but it, it is a completely imaginary world in which you're not dealing with the stuff in the world that we're actually in. You also use Google Maps to, like, get lost in a place, uh, right? I just love Google Earth. Google Earth. Oh, yeah. Google I Earth. Google Maps, I will go yeah. wander down the streets of Rome or wander along the edges of the canals in Venice. and what? Because once you're there, once you're on the ground, you can travel around. Now, I don't know about Venice because... That would have to be, most places are mapped by automobiles driving around. So it's only streets where an automobile could go. But maybe they had somebody do it on foot in Venice. I'll have to go and check. But, you know, you could pick New York or anywhere. I frequently love to know where my friends live so I could drive past their, walk past their house. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a friend uh, who's living in. I think she's in New Hampshire now. Maybe she's in Vermont. She's in one of those. Um, and she was telling <laughs> one me that of her, those. She, had, she and her husband went on a walk and I was able to go on the walk that they go on. She told me the mm-hmm. route and I took the walk with them, sort of. You know, it's it's a wonderful way to tour the world virtually. And it's a very, it's imagination fodder. Is it the same imagery that you find on Google Maps? Do you occasionally see the shadow of the Google car camera on the road? Oh, yeah. I see and that people often. wave yeah. to it, and there are weird things that are blurred out because yes. somebody has asked to have stuff. And yeah, and and it, as you're in traffic, you also see oncoming cars that are in front of you and then suddenly are behind you. And, you know, like you're experiencing traffic more or less in stop action time. I decided I'm a I'm a big Central California fan. My book series, B- the Burning Girl series, takes place in part in that area in a town I made up. But I love um, Cambria and Morro Bay and San Luis Obispo, and um, I am, however, terrified of cliffside, twisty roads, like which is Highway the hallmark 1. of that area of the world. It's a hallmark of just north of that area of the world. This whole region sits at the foot of Big Sur, and Big Sur is where they really get twisty. So, so that's why you like said, it. It's before I you had get to, into the hills. Exactly. I had to decide. I had to figure out where what was the point on Highway One that I would never want to drive beyond because I had driven up as far north as Hearst Castle and San Simeon. And so I, I knew that that was pretty flat, you know, it's sort of flat plains coming right to the ocean. Beautiful, right. sort of bleak, very Shetlandy. Uh, and it, it turned out I followed 
the road on Google Street View all the way to Ragged Point. And it was the images were so scary as Highway 1 twisted back on itself, kind of a switchback as it goes practically straight up. <laughs> I started to break out into a cold sweat. So a drive up Highway 1 will definitely not be part of my favorite summer, but we're excited to talk about yours. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery hour. <laughs> Okay, so before we get into everybody's uh, wonderful Facebook responses to our favorite summer query, we have to talk about this comment from a certain listener who is discovering that we are back. I'm uh, concealing her name for the big reveal. Oh, wow, the dinner party is back, she writes. I came to your first ever and y'all said my name wrong. <laughs> and your mother was there, Christopher. I, f I felt like I was in the presence of royalty. It's... Christana sounds like Santana. Yay, y'all are back. It's been forever. So fun. I'm glad she's so excited about us, even though we screwed up her name on our first ever episode of the Dinner Party Show. Uh, so fun. She says, since then, and now she's going to make us feel really old, my little daughter has grown up, dated guys, and now decided she likes girls better. Go figure. Shrug emoji. Good for her. So much for being born that way. Not all people are, but I am good with this. She, she is such a pretty darling. I am just as proud of my sweet, smart darling as your mother is of you, Christopher, and that is very proud. We love our children. Uh, she said she listened to our first show online and loved it so much. And uh, she goes on to say some other things, but they're all very lovely and supportive. So glad the Dinner Party Show is back. Um, and so I, I think if we can maintain the support of people as we say their names wrong given how often we say people's names wrong we're going to be okay in terms of our party and, people at least and you know as an extra bonus i'm actually on the show too <laughs> hi christana it's eric with as a in, c <laughs> with a c right yes <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Eric Eric doesn't have to get her name correctly. Only I do since I was so gloriously vetted. I've also uh, so, written books as well. You might want to try some of them. So we um we <laughs> we are we asked you to talk to us about your favorite summer, your best summer. And some of the responses were long. And I hope that we're the reason that Christana is having her best summer now because we have this wonderful new podcast that she's rediscovered. And, and we now have, we can pronounce her name correctly. And this is the 35th episode. So there's plenty for her to go back and re-explore of our new incarnation. Right. I want to go... 
I want to go with the briefest one first. This is Beth Murphy Saluga. <laughs> my favorite summer was when I moved out of my stepmonster's house. Hashtag best decision ever. <laughs> I love that. Uh. Yeah. Finding your freedom and finding that going out and escaping into the world. I mean, one of the things that I think is worth remembering is that oftentimes the thing standing between me and my best life is my belief that there's not a better life for me. And when mm. I can let go of the old life and take the, that leap of faith, oftentimes I find that it's way better. I mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't come with its own set of troubles and new um, you know, heartaches and all of the other things that life has, but leaving behind a life that isn't working is um, its own challenge. I, I think that, you know, it's hard to find a new job. It's hard to find a new husband. It's hard to find a new life. And I think sometimes we'll stay in a bad situation because it's so unpleasant to go and find a new one. But God, mm -hmm. so often in my life, that's been where all the happiness, it's what's made all the difference. What was it? You, you can probably, you'll probably feel comfortable naming names. I don't have to give you permission not to, but what was one of the worst situations you moved past that you initially didn't think there was something better lying beyond it? Well, you know, the biggest example that I always tell is my decision to come to California. I was working, uh, I was had been living in Columbia, South Carolina. I was working at an advertising agency. I was creative director. It was a hot little advertising. We were one of the top 20 fastest growing in the country, which doesn't mean we were very big, but it was still, you know, it was very chic little shop mm -hmm. and I had my own television show and I had a column in the local newspaper and I was reviewing arts and entertainment. And so I didn't have to make reservations and the show started when I arrived and I had a high rise apartment with a skyline view and a con fabulous convertible. And, you know, like it seemed like a great life and I wasn't particularly happy. Um, but mm. like, who's going to be able to top that life. And then through a series of, mm, a, circuitous events that would are longer it's a whole show all to itself i wound up being transferred to a feeder office um in orlando florida where i was not particularly happy um and uh reached a point where it was like you know it's the it's time for me to like try a new life and so i quit my job and packed up and came to california and that was a hard decision i didn't know anybody here i didn't have a place to stay i didn't have a job you know it was a complete crapshoot and it has made all the difference in my life it completely transformed my life but there is no way i would have let go of that life on my own without the external the unpleasant external forces and i'll leave it at that that ended up um taking taking me out of it. As I always tell it, I, um, I went, it was the summer that I first saw it with the Thelma and Louise came out and I saw the movie and I already owned a convertible mm. <laughs> and it was like, yes, yes, that's the thing. And I got in my convertible. I detoured around the, um, the grand Canyon and came all the rest, all the way out to California. Is that going to be your favorite summer or are we, no. are we yet to hear? Okay, good. Okay. That's no, fine. but no it is, it's, an, it's an emblematic of sometimes, and I think it's true in Beth, and I thought it was true in a lot of our, the, the, uh, the listeners' answers to the question. A lot of our party people um, didn't necessarily pick a joyous summer. Like, joy is not necessarily born, you know, it's, joy, it's born uh, maybe of 
juxtaposition. Like I didn't know I was joyful mm. until I realized how miserable I was, you know, until right. I had some basis for comparison. And it seems to inform a lot of our, uh, not all of them, but a lot of our favorite summers are informed by maybe not the most happy set of circumstances. Uh, absolutely. And when we get to mine, I, I think that's definitely true. But Tommy Ann Elquist Gunther, I, I would say the circumstances sound pretty great. My favorite summer was the summer I moved out of my parents' house and into an apartment with two my two best friends who happen to be gay men. Woohoo! Yay for gay men. They introduced me to the nightlife they enjoyed. Oh, I know how that goes. And it was like being reborn. We used yes. to work together, then go out for dinner, then hit the bars, then go eat breakfast, crash for a couple hours. And um, I'm going to say sentence to death in the gas chamber is me turning over the page and reading notes from a previous <laughs> episode. <laughs> head back to work and on the weekends we would go sun ourselves at lake michigan and do all the same things over except for the part the work part lol and you know i remember the thing that i love about that memory is being reminded of how um how much i managed like i think about that partying until four in the morning and then being at work at 7 30 at the next morning it'd be like uh, the thought of doing that the thought of just getting out of bed at 7.30 any morning, but certainly a morning after I'd stayed up till 4 o'clock in the morning, just seems improbable now. But at the time, the the energy was endless. I'm getting a look. You all can't see it at home. I just, just got a I'm look so, on the Facebook. I think you're so... The, I'm just so bathed in relief that Tommy Ann wasn't sentenced to death in the gas chamber. I had a moment yes, of turning that page really over. Thank like, heaven. Wow, this story went in a direction I did this not expect it to. This took a dark turn all of a sudden. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, I think that's left over from the last episode. Actually. I think that is our note. It was double-sided show notes. That's the problem. Um, oh, yeah, I absolutely. I, I think back on how I lived when I was younger and how I partied, and it's a miracle I'm still alive. I, I would do the thing of of coming. I lived with my parents during that period, and I would come through. And my was my dad down at breakfast or not? Like, did I have to go through a side door? And if I did uh. go through the door and was caught by him, and you know, having been partying all night, I would I would have some cover story that I'd quickly blurt out. I couldn't find my car, you know, and I'd go up. But, you know, a lot of fond memories from those periods, a lot of uh, not a real fine sense of consequence yet. I mean, like, I think that. No, I mean, I think it's fun to be young and irresponsible. I think we all need that part of our life. But I think it is also the part of our life where we learn where the consequences are less, one hopes, um, uh, traumatic or final or expansive, um, that there are consequences to the choices that we make, like. You have to learn that somewhere, and in our young adulthood, I think, is where that starts to come home, and one hopes for young adults everywhere that that lesson can be learned without it being too leave, leaving too big a mark. Right. Absolutely. Ann Jackson says, I think the best summer was probably when I left home and was spending my first summer with my husband. Of course, he was my boyfriend then. I was able to discover a strength I never knew I had and walking away from the toxicity that was in my family unit. It was hard. I was full of anxiety. But man, that summer was one of the best. Discovering me, in capital letters, was wonderful. I can't say all summers since then have been spectacular because that would be a lie. But I remember that feeling of anxiety, discovery, and growth. The best part in all of the summer since is knowing that I'm not done growing. I'm not done discovering new things about myself. That's great. And I'm now seeing your trend. Anxiety yes. was a hallmark of her favorite summer. Yeah. 
because yeah, it, it was started out. Growth. Yeah, she was. It was about making a fearful choice, but it turned out to have been a joyful moment in her life. Valerie Law says, "My favorite summer I spent mostly alone." I can identify with that, Valerie. As the but, youngest of six, I rarely had time to myself. I always had right. school, jobs, family obligations. My family always had people around too. And this was the first summer of college. Getting a part-time job just seemed silly to me as I would be returning to university soon. So I walked to the beach every day and read beach books. Oh, heaven. Then headed to the bar at the hotel pool deck at the beach, had a beer, and went home. What a life. That's my favorite summer. I was going to say, you had a pretty good young adulthood there. I'm jealous of that one. That sounds wonderful. And yes, sometimes being alone can be um, its own form of joy. Yes. I, I, we've been alone. I mean, we talk to each other every day, but for the length of this sort of pandemic that we're still in during this recording, we've been alone. And I, I feel like at the beginning of it, everyone was so sympathetic to people in our plight. They were like, I'm so sorry you're doing this alone. And then by the beginning of the second month, when they were ready to put their kids in the pantry uh-huh. and lock the door, yes. <laughs> they were all so jealous of us that we were doing this alone and had our own space and could watch whatever we wanted on television and all that sort of stuff. So Yes, you know. it, is, it is its own blessing. And if you've learned to enjoy it, it can be really a remarkable aspect of life. We're all born alone and we all go out alone. Ultimately, we're incredibly separate beings. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. even when we're together, nobody knows what's in my head or what I'm thinking or what I'm doing except me. It's still a I very solitary existence. I know what's in your head. I know you the just think you coursing through. You I, I know enough. I know enough about what comes out of your mouth to know what's in your head. Yeah. Eric Shaw coin. I say a lot. I get a lot out. I would say, yeah. There's not also a, a huge, I don't know, discrepancy or filter with you. You pretty, you don't really you'd, pull any punches. You'd be amazed. <laughs> you'd be amazed <laughs> no, how I'm much right. there's still, how much there's still there. What was the uh, show that we watched? Torchwood. There was an episode where one of the women who worked in whatever laboratory, secret lab, had the curse for, I guess, a day at least, of being able to hear everybody's thoughts. And it just drove her crazy. She had to go home because she could hear what everybody was thinking about her. I mean, like, yeah. oh, my God, what a nightmare. Suki Stackhouse, that happened to Suki on uh, True Blood, and it used to drive her nuts. She'd practice to sort of wall it out, but occasionally she would be at the restaurant and it would take a, it would get the best of her and she would suddenly be hearing what everybody was thinking. And it was it was um, it was overwhelming. I, mm-hmm. I can't even imagine. Lestat Joanne, deals with it. Absolutely. Joanne Brown. I don't know if she deals with being able to hear other people's thoughts, but I do know she shared with us a recollection <laughs> of I her favorite not, summer. Four of us girls in our early 20s drove from Chicago to Colorado to camp and drive around the Rockies. Four city kids who knew very little about camping in the outdoors. We went rafting, holy crap, horseback wow. riding, hiking, and had a marvelous time. We met the nicest women. people. And a few who were not so nice. She does not elaborate on that detail. I'm interested in getting more information about the not nice people because I have a a negativity bias. It was our first time being that far from home on our own. Still one of my favorite vacations. That sounds like it could be a movie. Yes, especially the part about some of them not so nice. I know. Profound. James P. Jordan. My favorite summer came after a happiest January to be followed by my saddest February. Our son was born in January, and then my lover was killed in a car wreck in February. Oh, it's awful. Oh, dear. So sorry. To avoid a nervous breakdown, 
My college Italian professor chaperoned a summer at her family home in Cremona. I toured the cities of Italy with her handsome brother, who was the perfect deflection from my grief. We sent presents home from every spot for son and mother. We traveled through Fellini's Italy and brought laughter back into my life and became a great friend. I think that's the brother or the professor he's referring to. Oh, and the cooking lessons, the wine, the olives. The magic of that summer made me a better father, a better son, and a man who could forgive and find peace. Well, that is... And again, joy being found as a, a, in direct um, connection to one of the worst tragedies of his life. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Dipping back into more wonderful uh, recollections from our party people of their favorite summers. This is from Steve Major. The summer of 1985, I was 19, met a boy in NYC, fell in love for the first time, whirlwind summer romance until he had to leave and go back to college. Turned out he was a seminary student. Oh, wow. And he broke my heart because he could not reconcile being gay and religious. Years later, we became friends. Thank you, 1985. Uh Uh-huh. Happily married to others, but you never forget your first summer lover. Well, and Steve was too young for to settle down whether he was a seminarian or not. I'm glad he got to go on and have much more adventures than just one summer at age 19. Yes. R.M. Lawson, also 19. My favorite summer is the one I turned 19. There is a certain bliss in discovering yourself for the first time. Who am I? What do I want? Where shall I go? What shall I do? The endless choices felt like a new life altogether, an open road that carried me away from my childhood and on to something more. This is, we've got another one that's 19, Deborah Ann Guy. My favorite summer was the summer quarter following my freshman year at college. I was 19 when I enrolled in a foreign study program at Universidad Veracruzana in Exalpa, Veracruz, Mexico. Whether I said that right will be up for our party people to say. Students boarded with local families. X-A-L-A-P-A. Yeah, I would go with Zalapa, but maybe you're right. Maybe it is Exalapa. Exalapa. <laughs> I don't know, but I would go with Zalapa. Anyway, White guys she boarded with local families. Stuff. Students boarded with local families Monday through Thursday. They would attend classes. Fridays, we would often cut classes to hop the second class buses to other parts of Mexico. Fell in lust. Not love. She says lust with a local boy. (laughs) Good for Deborah. In love with the food and the culture. So she distinguishes between where her love was and where her lust was because that's what 19 is all about. Yes, absolutely. Plenty of time for other stuff later. Absolutely. Uh, Vilma Sunshine Perez says my best summer was when I was 15 riding my skateboard and going to the Grand Army Plaza Library in Brooklyn, New York Uh. 
when I first discovered The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, who has forever remained my favorite author. I love that. Skating downhill on the way home as dusk was settling and getting home to my mommy and family, siblings and cats, many of whom are now gone. It is a bittersweet dream of my youth, and I will love it and how I felt back then forever. How perfect. Mm-hmm. Jessica Rees or Jessica Rise. Maybe I'll get a comment from her about how to say her name. Mine was age 21. I moved from Iowa to Oregon. No jobs, little money saved, living with relatives, dirt poor, and free as 10-year-olds to explore the mountains, rivers, and ocean. God, that does sound lovely. I had never seen rivers so clear or mountains so enormous. The ocean took hold of me, and I'm still obsessed 27 years later. I'm also obsessed with the coast of Oregon. I've never been, and I'm dying to go, particularly to Cannon Beach and thereabouts, just as long as I don't have to drive on any twisty mountain roads. And I don't have to be outside. Yeah, you don't go outside, but I like to go outside. Not big on clear mountain streams. I can see them from the car. But Oregon beaches are, are very much to your liking. They're cold most yeah, of the time. Yeah, beaches are not. Up, I don't really count for beaches. A walk. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really count them in the same vein as outside because you can see what's around you. Absolutely. Debbie Weeks. My favorite summer was when I moved by myself to San Francisco. Love San Francisco. I was ni- 19. A lot of summers of 19. A lot yes. of these happy memories seem to be about moments of liberation. And 19 is a point where a lot of us are like adults for the first time and out to enjoy the world. I just decided to go one day, Debbie says, and it was one of the most exciting times of my life. Seeing the ocean for the first time in the sequoias, it will be something I will never forget. Indeed. Mary Riley. Besides the times as a child, I spent camping on the beach in Baja, California with my family and family friends many moons ago. I loved the opportunity of going with three dear girlfriends to Newport, Rhode Island one summer. How lovely. We stayed at a mansion on the cliff walk, house sitting for a friend. One should always have friends with mansions in Newport. Absolutely. She, that's me interjecting my thoughts on Mary's post. Touring the other more famous and fabulous mansions there all around us, eating our weight in lobsters, which she spells with Ugh. an S-T-A-S and apostrophe, chowda, and clams, uh, which I believe they call stuffies. That's what she puts in parentheses. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Sailing, shopping, and sightseeing the wonderful area and all of its beautiful beaches, always laughing our heads off. Sounds okay. perfect. Wasn't Mary Riley um, Jack the Ripper's last victim? I don't know. I think there's a novel <laughs> called Mary Riley or a movie called Mary Riley yeah, with Julia and I Roberts. Think that's, yeah, maybe, but I don't know. I, I just, but this you know, Mary Riley this, seems to be okay. She's had a much better life. Yeah, absolutely. Much better life. Whether and, that's uh, true or not, yeah. Last but not least for our Facebook party people responses, Mark Allen Gunnell says, Summer eight years ago, I met my husband and we started dating. It was a summer of mountain trips, trips to Savannah, plays, movies, and falling in love. Not to get too sappy, but it's a summer that almost feels like it hasn't ended yet. Oh, Excellent. All right. That's so sweet. I love that. Those are wonderful memories. Your turn, Eric Shawquin. Oh, is it me? It's oh, on yeah. me to tell no, my story. Time. Well, yeah. I'm I'm very much keeping the theme alive. I I when I we first were talking about this topic, I was reminded of uh, the summer when I was I'm gonna say 
11, 12. I was between fifth grade. I'd finished fifth grade and I was going to start sixth grade the next fall. So I think that's 11, but, you know, in there. And we were living in a place called Clinton, Louisiana, where they filmed the movie Sounder, the courthouse that's um, that uh, that's in that movie is there. And maybe even the Diary of Miss Jane Pittman, but I'm not sure. But Sounder for sure. Anyway, um, it was... It was a really, it was a really turbulent time. It was that spring had been the moment that Louisiana desegregated its schools, mm-hmm. um, and it was not, it was not well received, and it, there was a lot of um, resistance and uh, this horrible old, uh, I think it was a Confederate. Um, like veterans home. It was an abandoned property. I think it was like an old ghost house was suddenly reopened as a private school that a lot of kids went to. This happened mid year and the rest of us, um, went to, uh, you know, the school that we were going to share with the rest of the elementary school students because segregation is ridiculous. Anyway, um, Obviously, my family was very much in favor of that and very clear about that. And it was not well received in the community. Our um, We lived in a trailer and the property that we lived on was sold out from under us. And we were basically evicted. Somebody came over to the house and in the in the process of, you know, under the guise of prepping it for and chopped down a tree that fell on. Um, my outdoor pool that I had bought with my saved up and bought with Jesus. my own money. It was like an above ground pool. I mean, it was my sister and I were chased off the road by a speeding car walking home from school by um, the last day of uh, the last day of school and, um, you know, jumped into a ditch not to be killed. It was it was not it was not a really happy sort of moment. And, and this, we were, this is because your family was in favor of integration. Right. As yeah, you said, because yeah. we were not in favor of desegregation. We just thought yeah. that was ri- ridiculous and we didn't make any secret of it. And we were called mm-hmm. the names that you would think we would be called, um, by the people who didn't, didn't agree with us. I, I hope that most of that is gone. I, uh. I know there's still a lot to be settled, but it was, it was, frightening and weird and I was young and so you know you only have feel vulnerable anyway being that age so our trailer was hauled away we were going to move to South Carolina from there so it wasn't like we were moving to a hot bed of liberal thought but it was at least away from there and um in the interim after the trailer was hauled away with our stuff in it we went to stay with um a woman named Catherine Peters, who really lived only about two doors from where we had lived before, uh, next to a lady named Miss uh, Jeannie White, who had been my sister's second grade teacher. And Miss Peters was, I believe, a teacher who taught with my mom. Anyway, it was a wonderful little house and a big backyard. And uh, I slept on a daybed that was in this little alcove that had windows on three sides of it. It was sort of like sleeping in a window seat. And uh, there would be these huge storms outside, big Louisiana thunderstorms. Mm. And I would be lying there in bed at night, perfectly safe with all the lightning and whatever around me. It's my that memory of being in that bed with that lightning and thunder around me is still my favorite memory of my whole life. I Mm. every night I fall asleep to the sound of thunderstorms that Alexa plays for me um, around the house. (laughs) And. 
her daughter, who had long since grown up and moved away from home, um, had the entire collection of Nancy Drew mystery books. And so every day I would wake up and lie in that day bed and read a whole Nancy Drew mystery because nothing else was required of me. I was allowed to play on the, under the guise of mowing the lawn, play on the riding mower in her big backyard with the pond in it. And she could cook anything in the world. And there was air conditioning, which was very glamorous back in the before times when I was that age. Um, the mm. school we had been to was nice because it had an attic fan. Can you imagine? No air conditioning, but an attic fan in Louisiana. Um, and it was a modern building. Um, the building we'd been in before didn't even have that. Can you maybe pause and tell us how an attic fan worked for those of us who aren't familiar with it? An, a, an attic fan is um, pulls the air up into the attic and out the vents on the end of your mm-hmm. house, if it was going to be in your house. And so it creates... A breeze. It pulls the the air in through the windows. Fresh air comes in through the windows and goes up and blows out of the house at the roof. So the hot air travels out, which rises anyway, and the cool air from outside. And it it just sort of creates a general breeze. It is something akin to um, like a primitive air conditioner. It was almost like a vacuum of sorts. It's a big Mm -hmm. fan, but it sucks rather than blowing. And it pulls air through your house, up through the attic and out through the, the roof joists in the, the school. There was a long, it was, it had those roofs, like in Louisiana, those very steep roofs. And at the the very top of it, there was like a, a mini mansard, um, that housed, the fans that pulled the air up through the school and out through the roof. It was, it was really quite lovely. It was much better than the school we'd been in before. Um, it was actually nicer, which I think was a lovely break. Um, for There were plenty of downsides during that time in life. But anyway, it's it, it was a terrifying summer. You know, it was terrifying. But I still love my murder mysteries, mm-hmm. and I still go to sleep every night to the sound of thunderstorms because of that summer, that mm. that feeling of safety, that feeling of uh, comfort and um, protection in Miss Peter's house was a, such a respite from what had been such a turbulent year. And the next year was even more turbulent because then we moved to another, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire. My father actually came to South Carolina to desegregate the schools. It had already was already in progress, but he worked at the desegregation department, which was actually a real thing. And so, and we lived in a trailer park in a terrible neighborhood with horrible, you know, it was, it was not like it got better all of a sudden, but that little moment, that little, um, oasis of calm and safety at Miss Peters has been a place that I return to in my heart mm. all these years. And in like many of our, um, our, of the people who answered this question, it was, it was a wonderful summer that was born out of really a terrible summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, because, and it was, and it was wonderful because everything else was so terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What wow. about you? Oh, I don't think we have time. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I okay that's fine i, I thought that's time <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to be this vulnerable no um it was the summer i graduated from high school i was 18 years old i could go to the gay bars in the french quarter because you only had to be 18 to get in and technically you weren't supposed to drink so I and was who was going to tell you now? Congregating. Yeah. Well, they eventually I would behave in a way that led some people to tell me no. <laughs> but I was surrounded by 
uh, gay men for the other time. I, I, I did not go to my prom or I did not go to my graduation party. I went to the bar. And I, I don't know if that was the right choice because I later found out from my classmates that they missed me and wished I had been there. But in my heart, I was saying I have been to enough functions where I have had to hide who I really am or felt like I needed to. It's my yeah. turn to go out with the boy that i am got a crush on and that I'm dating and be who I am. And that's what I did. Yeah. And we also celebrated my graduation with a wonderful trip to Italy with my whole family. Wow. And I had already started dating this boy who I just thought was going to be, you know, we were going to be together forever. And we were writing letters to each other. The trip was long enough that we could actually mail letters to each other back and forth. And I, towards the end of the trip, went into my father's room and said, I'd like to go home early, which was incredibly self-indulgent of me to, you know, ask for. But I'm, I have, I'm dating a boy and I want to go and see him. And this was how I came out to my father, essentially. And he said, okay, is that what makes you happy? And I said, yes. <laughs> he said, that's great, but you're not going home early. This is actually your graduation trip and we're all here because of you. So you can last another four days in Perugia and we can go see Assisi, which was actually a great <laughs> thing because an earthquake really damaged it a short while after that. So it was magical. And, you know, I got back to town at the scheduled time and the the boy broke up with me pretty soon after it was a you know a whirlwind life goes on romance but what i realized was that the longing that i felt for him while i was on that trip aside from being an authentic true romantic feeling was also what i wanted to write about you know and it's not like every story i wrote was going to be a love story or a romance story but i actually began to daydream protective fantasies of like, what if something bad happened to him and I had to go protect him? What if I had to avenge his name if something really bad happened to him? Because, you know, I'm a dark sort of thriller writer thinker. It was it, the, my, the beginning of my creative artistic identity was formed that summer from that brief relationship. And he and I are still friends today. We remained sort of close and lightly dated intermittently, not really... He didn't leave my life entirely, but that summer, that awakening to who I really was, and I think really that was the theme throughout a lot of these responses, was it was the summer I figured out who I was. I think even your summer of discovering that you loved murder mysteries, you write murder mysteries today, right. but that, that, that desiring of order and justice and resolution in the midst of all of that injustice that you were experiencing and violence right. that you were experiencing, I think... Those moments of self-discovery and self-realization are as impactful but also as positive as I went on a wonderful vacation with my best girlfriends, which is not to diminish that in any way either. You know, it's all great. But yeah, I would have to say the summer I realized who I was, I did cling to a bisexual label far longer than I knew it to be truly accurate and my motives for doing so were suspect you know I thought it was better to be bisexual you know there are true bisexuals I have many friends who are bisexuals they're 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 they are their own individuals I was not and you have bisexual experiences I mean it's not like you didn't like I don't yeah you're a gold star gay as they say they say <laughs> right yes yeah. I, there's never been any i've never even experimented it's never seemed that appealing but yeah and there was safety in it it was there was it was not okay to be who we were until you know very recently and even now there are plenty of people who still have 
hard feelings about it, but at least we're getting to a place where the law recognizes our right to exist. Right. And, you know, here's hoping that the hearts and minds of our fellow citizens will follow. Absolutely. And, and, and I, I, but I really agree with you strongly. Like, I really do believe that, that these, these moments that make us are not always pleasant. And maybe that ties into how some of us are dealing with the difficulties of this summer. I mean, there is a potential for self-examination and self-reflection when a lot of us are as isolated as we've been in the summer of 2020. But there's also a dangerous potential for self-obsession and negative self-obsession when we're trapped in the house with our thoughts, particularly for those of us who are alone. And I think having a, a program of action... And you have that tendency to be... Yeah. Negatively yeah. focused. Exactly. Yeah, it's, I think that's a risk. I always like to remember that the best movies and books and television shows are not about people's lives where everything turned out great. Mm-hmm. Like, that isn't actually very interesting. I mean, it's great if it happens to you, but it's not actually the stuff we make movies about because it's not very interesting, you yeah. know? Perfect childhood, went to the perfect school, met the perfect boy, settled down, got married, built a house, had children, had a great job at the bank, retired, whatever. That's great life, but not great storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think all of us experience the, the, the best stories of our lives are not necessarily the stories where everything was great. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, a huge thank you again to all of our party people who responded to that. And a reminder Absolutely. that the Ask Eric email address is always open at Eric. I should say it's not at Eric. The email address is Eric at the dinner party show.com. And of course, you are always welcome to leave questions or comments on our Facebook page with the email addresses there for those of you who may want your comment discussed on the show but would like it to remain anonymous. Please say so if that is what you would like. We are returning next week to True Crime TV Club. For those Yay. of you who would like to study ahead, which is absolutely not necessary. Uh, but very much fun. I mean, it's like a book club, right? It's more yeah. fun if everybody reads the same book. But, but if you don't, that's cool, too, as according to the Cindy Comforti rule. Absolutely. Cindy Comforti says she watched one of the shows we discussed and found it was way more repetitive and slow than our recapping of it. And so our job when we do this is to serve up the episode in such detail that you can feel like you've watched it without actually going to the trouble. Vanity, and we hope be a little entertaining while we do it. Vanity Fair Confidential is the series. We will be discussing season three, episode 12, and it covers a case that is very well known here in the United States, at least, but which we have never talked about on this podcast. Natalie Holloway, Lost in Paradise. That is the title of the episode. Once again, that's Vanity Fair Confidential. What uh, season? Season three, episode 12. Excellent. Episode 12. I'm writing that down. Writing that down. So, until next time, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. Happy summer. This is TDPS.